It is tremendous <laughs> to be back here. Of all the years that I needed focal point, it was the year last year when we couldn't get together. But that made this year all the more sweet. And I'm grateful to be here with your elders and your deacons and every member here. And uh, obviously both of the, the preachers here have had tremendous impacts um, on my life. And uh, I'm thankful to be able to study together this afternoon. The irony that was 2020, because in preaching sometimes as we try and develop themes for the year, we thought we were going to pick low-hanging fruit. 2020 was obvious. So churches all over picked 2020 vision. Now the irony is that no one saw 2020 coming. Not even close. Okay? And... It uh, changed a lot of things. Nobody saw 150 million people infected. Nobody saw 3 million people dying. Nobody saw economies on the brink of disaster. Nobody saw people losing their jobs. Nobody saw even some, I think even some of the, the family issues that have developed in our nation were all the more heightened when families were forced to come home together in those Difficulties that hadn't been addressed were really shown. So, <clears throat> it's impossible for the church that lives in the world. You see Matthew five thirteen through 16. He, 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 Jesus leads with the assumption that we are a part of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The assumption is that we are to remain in the world, but not of it. Okay? And so, with the church being involved in that world... It's inevitable that the church was going to feel the shocks of what happened in 2020. Now, as we think about that, though, hopefully we're on a bit of a downturn, okay? And so the question that, that really all of us are asking is, what do we do next? Where do we go from here? Now, listen, <clears throat> I am under no speculate. I, <laughs> I'm 34 years old and painfully aware that I'm 34 years old. And what I don't know is what scares me more than anything. So what I want us to do this afternoon, it's nothing that's, that's revolutionary, but I do believe that it's an important exercise that we walk through and examine what has happened. And we examine what the responses were and how we need to respond in return to those things. And so what I want us to do is to begin by looking at a principle from Job, and using that principle to launch us into an assessment, which we'll talk about when we look at Job, and then close by looking at where our focus should be. So if you have your Bible, let's go ahead and open to Job chapter 23. Job chapter 23, as we begin and think about this principle. Now, in the last hour, we heard about the fact that difficulties in life come, and they can offer great benefits. There are lessons that many times we need to learn, we just simply don't want to. And when they're forced upon us, we have to learn them. And Job teaches us something about that as well. At the very end of the book, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now what you have is a discussion of empirical senses, and one is more focused and tightened than the other. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. There's one thing to know someone by their voice. But it's another thing, especially in the days of pre-social media, to where you knew the voice, but then when you put a face with it, the picture just got bigger. Your understanding developed into who that individual was. And so 
when Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What he's saying is that he now understood and knew God in a way that he had not known him before. And to be honest with you, had he not gone through what he did, he may not have ever seen God that way. And so he looks at that and he exults in that idea. And so difficulties and suffering, they have their benefits. But here's a side of difficulties that often we don't think about as much. And that is that difficulties have a tendency to reveal us. You see, some people on the high level look at things and they say people are made in difficult moments. My honest opinion is I think people are revealed by difficult moments. Okay? They're revealed by difficult moments. Because you see, in those difficult moments, let's take a sports analogy. We look at an individual and it comes down to the end of the game and everybody's exhausted. We're in, say, double overtime in basketball. Everybody's exhausted. And somebody's got to take the last shot. Who's going to take it and how are they going to do it and how much energy do they have left? And, so, and we say they hit an incredible shot that was improbable for them to make. But here's the thing. Was it really that improbable? How many thousands of times in the gym when nobody else was there had that individual been shooting, preparing himself for that moment? So you see, in that moment where the crisis came, it it, it took who he was, took over. He didn't get scared at the moment. He embraced the moment and ran after the moment and delivered in the moment because it was revealing who he had been all along, what he'd been preparing to be. And so Job, I think, is going to show us that principle. Look at Job chapter 23, beginning in verse 10. He talks about it and he says, But he, speaking of God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. And so when Job, and this is really a critical moment in Job because it's kind of dawning on Job what is really going on. That, that this, is, this is not going to be something that breaks him. And he says this is a test. And that, that's really critical in the moments when you watch his thinking throughout the speeches. But he says, when God has tried me, I'm going to come out as gold. Now here's the thing. And I understand that we're dealing with a comparison. He says, I'm coming forth as gold. But the idea inherent in the comparison for something to come forth as gold before it passes through fire, what must it be before it passed through the fire? It had to be gold going in if it was going to be gold going out. And so when Job is saying, I will come forth as gold, he, was, he had been gold all along. That's, Brother Kate's taught us that a million times in Job class. He had, been, he had been gold all along. And so when the difficulties came upon him, He simply responded the way he was supposed to. And didn't really God know this? Isn't that why when Satan strutted himself before God in heaven and basically said, I've got the whole world eating out of the palm of my hand, that God said, now now, wait a minute, what about Job? A perfect and an upright man when he fears God and turns away from evil. And of course, he, he hurls the accusation that, that God is trying to bribe him and do all these different things that, you know, makes an accusation against God and man that God's not worthy to be worshipped and man's the only kind of creature you have to buy is love. And so, really, neither one of you are any good. 
And then in chapter 2, after he inflicts a round of suffering, Satan comes back and God says, what about Job? He's still holding fast his integrity. Yeah, but that wasn't even a test. People are willing to give up people they love. It's when you touch somebody's skin, when you hit them, that's when things get a little bit different. So, God knows on the front end how Job is going to respond. He, He knows what Job is going to do. But then Job walks through it. And he goes through the the immeasurable suffering of chapter 1. And what does he do? He shaves his head and he falls down on the ground and he worships. And you remember Satan had said of Job, he will curse you to his face. But Job does the antithesis of it at the end. He blesses the name of the Lord. Or when his wife encourages him to curse God in chapter 2, what does he say? Listen, God has been good to us. So you're saying our commitment to God should only be so long. And by the way, this is obviously a paraphrase. That our commitment to God should only be there as long as he does what we think he should do. If that's what commitment is, it's not commitment. And so Job in this process, he shines so brightly because of who he had been all along. And when he was put through the test... It revealed who he had been all along. Now, that's not to say that Job was perfect. Because I do think there are some ways in which Job struggled. And I think the, the implications of Job 42.6 are pretty solid. When he repents and dusts and ashes, that he knows that there were some things even about him that, that needed to be cleaned up. And so in that difficulty, we saw his strengths, but we also saw some, perhaps some weaknesses come out. Now, from that principle, that difficulties show us who we are, give us, they're they're a way to make a good assessment of who we are, I think it's good for us to move into an assessment of us. Now, obviously, I'm not making the implications that what went on in Job are perfectly parallel to a pandemic, okay? That's not an implication you want to make. That's a nightmare of an implication. That's why we're calling it a principle, that a difficulty, the principle of difficulty can reveal what's there. So what I want us to do in this, and these are solely upon my observations of of conversations with people in, in different churches and seeing things that took place on social media the same way that everybody else did. These are some observations that I think that I want us to see. And I want us to first of all begin with some things that were really positive. That that we should not boast in, but we should It's okay to acknowledge that we handled some things. We saw some things about ourselves that were good. There were also some things that we were reminded of. Not really bad or good, but we were just reminded of them. And then we're going to have to, if we're going to be honest and we're going to be faithful, we're going to have to look at some things that showed us about ourselves that really maybe weren't the best. And then let that move us into our focus. You see, a lot of people say experience is the best teacher. And I agree with that. Listen, I I don't really like semantic games. You know, people fight back and forth, all these semantic. I'm not interested in that. So when I say this, I'm not getting into a semantic game. I just prefer a little more detail to that. I don't believe necessarily that that experience is the best teacher. I believe that evaluated and enacted experience is the best teacher. A lot of people experience something, and they experience it again and again and again. Why? Because they never evaluate, and they never learn from it, and they keep doing it, and they keep receiving the same experience. They keep receiving the same consequence. 
So it's evaluated experience that leads us to take the lesson and enact it that helps us to grow. So number one, as we think about the positive things that we saw, I think on many fronts it was hard not to see that brotherly love was present. And we'll talk about maybe some issues that we had in that area a little bit later. But I think on the whole, we saw some things that were there. And John, you know this text better than I do. John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And he then sets the new standard of love, right? He says, you're going to do it as I have loved you. Now, the the, the differences that existed in that group of men that he told the importance of love were extreme. And, you know, sometimes we get into, I remember the first time I encountered the principle, Aubrey Johnson, his book, Love More and Sin Less, talked about some people get a romantic view of the church. And what happens is they end up becoming disenfranchised with the church. They have this ideal of God's plan for for the church is perfect, but sometimes our execution of it is anything but that. And so if we have this idea that we're going to come to church and and everybody's always going to get along and we're never going to disagree with one another, when those disagreements happen, it can really rock us. Okay? And so when we're looking at brotherly love, it's not the idea that everything goes perfectly and smoothly. You're going to have differences of judgment, but how do you work through those things? And I think in the pandemic, we saw a lot of people practicing brotherly love. We saw people who were willing to put their own health at risk to take care of other people. We saw people taking people to doctor's offices and in different locations. We saw people going to the grocery store for people who would not go. We saw people, I mean, really shaken to their core that they couldn't be around other Christians. We saw that... that People legitimately not just love sentimentally, but also in our actions. I mean, one of the the fun things that we saw, and I'm sure everybody saw it on social media and in a number of different places, was that congregations would just get in their cars and drive by shut-ins and just wave, just some kind of human interaction. We decided that we weren't going to sit and play poor pitiful me. We were actually going to try and do something in the midst of it and encourage people in the midst of it. That was a positive. Now, another area that I thought we were really positive on was was the idea of sacrificial service. And that that really goes along with the idea of love. They're really uh, intermingled. Jesus, of course, is our primary example of that in Mark 10, 45. He, He didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve. And we saw people who were willing to serve. And they were willing to serve in, in any way that they were needed. And at great peril to themselves. Number three... One of the things that I saw that I was encouraged about was I saw, and I, I, I think I always knew it, but maybe not to this degree, I saw how talented our brothers and sisters are. You know, we have to be careful that we don't become Debbie Downers about the church. God does gift people with certain gifts. And we saw that on display, that that individuals, even in my own experience, some individuals that that were even almost fringe 
in their commitment to the Lord. All of a sudden, they jumped right to the center in the midst, and whatever we needed, that's where they were. They were, we saw that our brothers and sisters are smart, they're dedicated, they're talented, they're innovative. That's a good thing, and that's something that we don't need to let slip to the wayside. We need to capitalize on what we saw and flesh it out and grow those people. Okay? So we saw talent. We saw endurance. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, the example of Jesus who stared away from everything else and focused on the joy that was set before him. We saw people who, obviously, we all endured the, the, the physical things of the, of the pandemic. We endured some of the, the mental and emotional things that went along with it. But a lot of people <clears throat> thrived spiritually. And what we would think of as were circumstances that weren't necessarily conducive to spiritual growth, is what we would normally think of. But they continued to strive, they continued to, to really grow in the process. And so when we look at what was going on there and we saw the endurance. Over the years, I've come to appreciate one quality in Christians. Many, but this one in particular. And it's what I call just flat-out spiritual toughness. They're just tough. And I don't mean that, that they run roughshod over people, but they just keep going. No matter how hard they get hit, they just keep going. They have an endurance to them. They are so deeply rooted in Christ that when a wind blows them over, eventually the wind stops and they stand back up and they just keep going. And we saw that in so many people. We endured a lot of things that we never thought we could. Further, I think... We saw leadership. I want to deal with this in two aspects. First, we saw leadership rise up from the midst of, of the congregation itself. We saw individuals who were willing to, who said, you know, we can't get together in big groups, but we might be able to in small groups, and so we're going to have this many people over at our house and try and stay within the restrictions and study together. And, and again, people were just launching out and being willing to do those things, which before some of them weren't really that involved. We didn't necessarily think of them as being individuals who would take the initiative to do that, but they did. Listen, that's good news for us. That's, these are individuals now that we know they possess the ability. So now we start working with those individuals and we start drawing out what is in them. But on the second, the second tier to that <clears throat> is about elderships. Acts 20 and verse 28, the responsibility that falls upon elders is tremendous. And I got to tell you, <clears throat> when I watched the way that most elders handled themselves throughout this pandemic, the only way I know to describe it was I was just proud. I was so proud of how they handled themselves. They would get together. They were unafraid to tell each other, I don't know. I'm scared. What are the implications of this? We've never done this before. I think it should be this way. I think it should be this way. But yet, we didn't, they didn't get into knockdown dragouts over it. They found a way to find consensus to take care of their people. And wherever we are members... Send your elders a thank you note. 
for what they did and tell them that you understood. Because listen, until you're in that seat, it's hard to know the pressure that comes with it, especially in a time like a pandemic. And the fact that they went through that and handled it so well is so encouraging. And so those are a few things amongst many, I think, could be said that, that were extremely positive coming, in, or coming out of the pandemic. And obviously, as Paul would tell the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 3 and 4 about their love for one another, just continue to abound. Even Listen, just because we do good at those things doesn't mean that we don't need to grow, we don't need to improve, we don't need to, to push ourselves to be more. Now, number two under this idea and to this assessment, we think about some things we were reminded of. I think the one that hit us all, if we're being honest, even those of us who felt like we valued it, the one that hit us the heaviest was the value of community. You see, we're, we're, we're created to be communal beings. God himself is communal. John 17 and verse 24, this loving relationship that's always existed from all eternity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we were created for that community. That's what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is about, that Jesus has opened this way for us to approach God and so we're able to come together and to stir up one another for love and good works. And we have that community. And it was hard for me going into my office all the time and walking past an empty auditorium wondering when was the next time we were going to get in here together. And so I, I, I think a lot of us were really reminded not to take something so simple, what we, what we took for granted as a given, not to take it for granted. Because it could be taken from us. The second thing I think we were reminded of was our frailty. Psalm 34, that's what the psalmist, or Psalm 30, um, <clears throat> Psalm 39, 4 through 6, I should say. Where the psalmist prays for God to teach him how frail he is. You see, in a nation where, and I, I love our nation, and I love the fact that we have medical advancements. But in a pandemic, we were shown that even the mighty medical field could be hit with something, and they didn't know what to do. And we were reminded that some of the things in which we took security, you know, we were shocked to hear there's a disease or there's a, there's a, a virus that's running around. Well, what do we do? What shot do we need to go get for it? Oh, well, we don't have one. And some of our responses were like this. What do you mean we don't have one? We were shown frailty. We were shown how vulnerable we are. And we're reminded of our full dependence upon God. A third reminder, this will be the last one, but as we said, many more could be mentioned. A third reminder I think we saw. I have three boys, five and under. And one of the things that I was reminded of in the midst of all this, when my kids couldn't go to Bible class on Sunday and Wednesday... I was reminded of the importance of my responsibility before God to make sure that they are fed. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. 
to bring them up in the nurture and admonition. I mean, listen, the way it really should be viewed, I understand the Bible school in the local church is really what I call like a vitamin supplement. It's not the full meal. You can't eat two meals a week and live and be healthy. Okay? And so the, the, the Bible class in the local church is, is only a vitamin supplement at best. But we saw just how hard it is even when the vitamin supplement is removed. And that if they were going to get any instruction whatsoever, it was going to be us or it wasn't going to be at all. And those are things I think we have to take with us and, and not forget. But then I think as we move to maybe some negative areas that we need to improve. Number one, I think we saw the danger of convenience. We kind of got into this routine, didn't we? That I could get up on Sunday morning whenever I want to and I could worship on demand. Right? Whenever I wanted to go and hit the button... That was fine. Whether that was first thing in the morning or right before we went to bed at night, I could do that. And what are we feeling some of the aftershocks of? People not coming back to worship services, and what are they saying? Well, I watched at home. Yeah, but there's something bigger there that we're missing. And so, for me, this really brought to, to mind something like Galatians 6, verse 1. If a brother is overtaken in a fault or, or he is overtaken in a trespass. And the way I understand that, to be, to be overtaken isn't the idea that he decides, you know what, I'm tired of this, this God thing and I'm just going to walk away. He just kind of gets pulled in. He just kind of drifts into it, like Hebrews 2 and verse 1. And for me, in this pandemic, those texts have really come to the forefront because I feel like we've seen a lot of people. And if we're honest, all of us got used to the convenience. We all built new Sunday and Wednesday routines, didn't we? We couldn't just go and do everything that we needed to do. Now we've got to get used to going back on Wednesday nights, on Sunday nights, and reorienting our days. And so we have to watch for the dangers of contentment and pay attention to those things. Number two, I think some character issues came to the front. For an example, we saw some tempers flare. And listen... There's not a person in this room who's of the age of accountability that's never lost their temper. So we're all on the same footing. Let's just agree there. But Christians, I'm tired of watching Christians mask their temper as passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the same thing. It is not the same thing. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32 still says that we should put away all of these things, and the meanings of one of the old translations is this loud quarreling, these yelling matches that we get into. We saw impatience. We all were impatient at some point, if we're being honest. Don't you find it interesting that the first characteristic of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is what? It's patience. It suffers long. 
We have to, to learn and to be pressed in that endurance. We saw what hurtful speech can do. And the ugly truth is that once it's said, it can't be unheard sometimes. That's why Solomon said, death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18 and verse 21. Don't let corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, Ephesians 4.29. But season your speech that you may know how you always ought to answer every man, Colossians 4 and verse 6. In the midst of some of this struggle, we forgot some of that. Or what about the issue of complaining? Philippians 2 and verse 14, or 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 10, where he's categorizing all of the sins in the wilderness, and he says, and do not grumble, as many did and then perished. I don't know why the elders are doing this. I don't know why this is, you know, this is not an issue. or I don't know why this is not being addressed or why someone's not saying this or why this person is not doing that. What about assumptions? Well, the elders made this decision because blank. One of the things that I have learned and loved, learned to love about elders and to really defend them on is some of their decision-making. People will come and they say, but they won't give me an answer. But here's the thing. You see, being an elder, you have to take big picture. And sometimes giving you an answer means revealing something about someone that they can't do. It can't happen. If they let you know everything behind the decision, it may reveal an issue that doesn't need to be known. And so I can't, when when my elders make a decision, my assumption can't be they're making it because they're trying to get at me. Because you see, love is something that believes what is best in people. Even if I don't understand, and even if I can't get a full explanation... I'm going to choose to believe that you did it for the right reason until I'm given reason otherwise. We saw self-will. Love doesn't insist on its own way, but, you know, if everybody else would see it like us, the world would be a better place. I mean, that's what we say, basically. Um, Something as simple as rudeness. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not rude, it's not graceless, it's not rough and gruff in how it treats people. You see, here's the thing. Well, never mind. We'll come to that in a minute. Number three, Christian liberty. We saw some Christian liberty issues, didn't we? Christian liberty is that tough line to walk. I mean, it's, it's incredibly tough. But we saw that some people were willing to flaunt their liberties. You can't make me. And the other people manipulated Christian liberties. If you loved me, you would. Here's the thing. If you're going to have Christian liberty, it has to be liberty. Romans 14.3 still says, Don't let the one who eats despise him who does not eat, and the one who does not eat despise him who does. You see, liberty is great as long as it's liberty as we see it. 
But that's not really liberty. It's not really liberty until you can extend it to someone with whom you disagree. Then you will find out whether you respect and agree with liberty. And you know, in the midst of some of these fights, I kind of had this image in my head. So you got an individual over here on one position, whichever position you want to assign the person, the individual, the invisible person over here. And you got another invisible person over here, two Christians. They're going back and forth yelling at each other. And I've just had this image in my head of Jesus. And uh, he's just kind of sitting here. And, you know, as they're going back and forth, he looks at this one and goes. Then this one starts and he just turns to him and listens. I told you to love each other. I told you to love each other. And while you're fighting about this, neither one of you are looking at me. Number four, quickly. I think we learned some things about Christians and government relations. I want to look at two tiers of this. Number one, some people, some Christians picked fights with the government and then cried persecution when the government responded. Please hear this very clearly. Our Lord and his apostles never picked a fight with government. They didn't. And whenever we talk about Christian and governments, people are always quick to cite one passage and one passage only, and what is it? It's the one exception clause. We ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5 and verse 29. Do you know why we cite the exception clause? Because it's easier to cite an exception and find justification for not doing it than it is to submit and do what we're told. That's why we want to cite that clause all the time. We don't want to cite Romans 13.1. We don't want to cite 1 Peter 2.14-16 that says we submit to government, which was a government far more evil than ours. Not even close. Just read 12 Caesars. The second issue was that it seemed as if some Christians were more concerned with losing American rights and their patriotism than they were about their Lord. You see, here's the thing. Patriotism does not rule Christianity. The inferior does not rule the superior. Our patriotism is governed, first and foremost, like everything else, by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So very quickly, let's talk about our focus. I want to look at two aspects, short-term, long-term. Short-term, number one, we've got to look at connections closely, right? We've been disconnected for so long in, in distance and proximity. You know, what, what's so interesting about the Acts 2, 42 to 47 early church picture, go through there sometimes and just circle the amount of times you see, the, you see plural words like them and there and together. It's everywhere. You see, that's a, that's a key ingredient to church success, I believe, is actually being together. It's like a marriage. You can't make it work if you're never together. Okay? 
And so they're able to do that, and we've, we've got to get back to those connections as we're able to and as wisdom dictates, and connecting people to their work. There have been deacons who have said to their elders, I just feel so lost right now because I wanted to serve and I don't know how, and I just feel disconnected. We've got to find the way to get that going again. Number two, we need to focus on Christian character. Disagreements have happened. we've got to focus on healing the divisions, ending the suspicion, the, you know, it it was mask or no mask, but now it's going to turn into vaccine, no vaccine. We're going to go back, and we start viewing us versus them. When it becomes us versus them, Jesus loses centrality. It has to be Jesus. And so... When we look at Christian character and how to develop it, we need to, for those of us who preach, and I say this as a person with limited experience, but brothers, if our preaching does not focus on Christian character, something is wrong with it. Something's wrong with it. Think about Here's something that's really been on my mind lately. The proportions to which the New Testament gives attention to things and the proportion to which we give attention to things. That's concerning to me. How many times in the epistles does Paul talk about old man, new man? But how many times in sermons do we talk about old man, new man? And I don't mean just avoiding what we consider to be the big ones. I mean in how we treat people. The disposition of heart that leads us to treat people the right way. Number three, we're obviously going to have to look at conflict resolution, Matthew 18. The disagreements are going to happen. We're going to have to try and heal those divisions and learn to get together and and sit down and work it out. Number four, we're going to have to look at restoring the wayward. Because people have slipped into it. And what we're going to see, I think, in this process is whether we really practice Galatians 6 and verse 1. Do we, are we willing to admit, I can understand how you got here? Not go in here with a haughty look at someone and say, you're so terrible and I can't believe you've quit. But just to be honest and vulnerable and say, hey, I've felt the same, I've felt the same pull. I've felt the same difficulties. I understand where you're coming from. You know, there is a way to draw people back to the Lord without beating them over the head in the process. Because in that same text in Galatians 6 and verse 1, to restore the bone, one of its early connotations was of setting a broken bone. Now, up to this point in my life, so far I've not broken one. However, that could change in three minutes. But if I did break my leg and I went into the doctor's office and he came up to me and he says, yeah, it looks broken, and steps on it, I would hope Christian character would take over, but I wouldn't be happy. But here's the thing. And if we're honest, how many broken people have we stepped on instead of restored? We've got to do something there in restoring them, encouraging them back. Number two in the long run, look, it's not rocket science. 
Love God and love your neighbor. Mark 12. That's what we're about. We're about constantly and passionately pursuing our Lord and loving Him and growing deeper and deeper into and being conformed more and more into His image as we behold His glory, hopefully being changed from one degree of glory to the other in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. And we're about helping other people to find that connection, to find and and to enjoy what it is that, that we have been blessed with. That has not, no pandemic can change that. Nothing can ever change that. And then it's really on a congregation-to-congregation basis. It's up to leaders to know their members and to know what they need and what needs to be emphasized at certain points and what needs to be held back at a point and how we need to work forward. I think that's how we handle the pandemic. But as we kind of come back full circle in the church past the pandemic... I think we just kind of have to do what Job did. We've got to hold fast to the steps of God. Treasure up the words of his mouth more than our necessary food while he cuts away all of the impurities from us and makes us more like Jesus. And we can come forth as gold and really we just have to remember that we are, we are a redeemed treasure to God, which is amazing in its concept. But we have to remember that. And we honestly just have to live like it. And I think we'll, the Lord will take care of the rest. It's all Him anyway. And we'll be fine in that process.